Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Mary Plastic. I am a founder of Upgrade Disability and your host. I would like to thank you for joining me today at the intersection of disability and politics. The road ahead can be a bumpy one, so buckle up and let's navigate this journey together. to have you on my podcast today. Michaela, will you please introduce yourself to our audience? Hello, my name is Michaela Jackson. My pronouns are she, her. I am a writer and a disability activist. I do a lot of my activism over on Instagram and I love all things that are Black. So that's a little bit about me and I'm super excited to talk to Mary today. I am so excited that you're here, Michelle. You know that you and I have had some amazing conversations, and we always say we have to record these conversations. Well, today we're going to start with recording this conversation, and I'm so glad. Would you please talk to us about a defining moment in your disability journey? Of course. So for those of you who don't know, I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is like a connective tissue disorder. So it has affected me my entire life because it is genetic. But I think the defining moment for me was probably like my late teens, so 18 to like 21, that time period was pretty big because one, I was getting transferred out of um, pediatric care into adult care. So then I was taking on everything myself. And I think being a young Black woman trying to figure out and navigate the healthcare system by yourself is a lot. And there is no manual for that. <laughs> um, so I think that was one of the biggest moments for me. And then kind of realizing that there were other things at play. It wasn't just one big, you know, write off of, okay, here's what it is. You're good. It was more of like m- multiple things kind of trickling down uh, and making my life difficult. So I think that was one of the most defining moments because I'm trying to not only come into myself as just like a human being, but also trying to navigate a system that was never made for me, never was intended for me to understand. So that was quite difficult without any form of like aid, I guess, or like direction or guidance from anyone. So, yeah. Isn't it funny how the medical system is not built for the disabled and chronic ill. And it's what is supposed to treat us, but it's not built for us. And you're right, there's no manual. There's no manual at all. Once you're diagnosed with chronic illness, if you are privileged enough to get an official diagnosis, they hand you some papers, and do a bunch of tests and send you on your way with no other instruction, nothing else. Has that been your experience also? Very much. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I got diagnosed, I think I was about 17, 18 years old with EDS and then some other diagnoses followed. 
But that's kind of a lot of our experiences, right? Of like being chronically ill. Okay, you look fine. So we're going to write you off as such. And then we'll do a couple tests and there'll be a couple findings. So we're not going to touch on that because again, you look fine enough to be okay. So we're just going to kind of let you wait till five years down the road where you continue to wither away. And then that's when we'll actually take into initiative to like, you know, figure out what's wrong. Um, but other than that, we're just going to let you stay and kind of go down this rabbit hole of eventually being too sick to do anything to actually take into consideration that, hey, this patient probably needs help today because this could also help them in the future. So that's definitely a thousand percent my experience. And it sucks that I had to wait till I was 25 to realize that that should not be the experience. It sucks, but you know. And you were 25. I was 40. I was 40 when I was diagnosed with my first chronic illness. And the doctor kept telling me, oh, you get tired, you get depressed, you're getting old. And when my doctor told me that, I wasn't even in my 40s yet. And he's telling me, oh, you're getting old. Okay. (laughs) And I think that's so interesting, too, because it's like, so the whole, okay, you're just anxious, you're just depressed. Even if I was, that's still an issue. <laughs> like, so we should still figure out a way to tackle the issue, regardless if it was my mental health or my physical health, both coincide. So I still don't understand where they, like, where that kind of line of thinking comes from, you know? Well, I think we both know where that thinking comes from. And that thinking comes from medical racism. And you and I have had many a talk about medical racism. And I do want to take a moment and acknowledge that although I am a woman of color, I still hold privilege over you and young black women because there are levels and layers and nuances the privilege and you can be disabled and have privilege and I do have privilege and I want to acknowledge that you and I have shared medical racism stories so I'm gonna let you go first and then I might share one as well okay cool so speaking of privilege really quick want to add this in there too I think it's also interesting for me, like having a parent who actually was invested, like helped me kind of figure out, you know, what to do, what doctor to go to. That also gave me a sense of privilege because now I know how to uh, navigate the system versus like me going into it with fresh eyes and not knowing how to, you know, go along with this wicked system. Right. Um, But two stories. I think my one that really has rattled me and like kind of changed my perspective on how I see things was, I guess it was 2020 during COVID, my feeding tube fell out of my stomach multiple times. But this particular time it fell out and like, I don't know if anybody listening has ever had a, uh, like a medical device fall out of you, but it's not comfortable. It's not fun. So it like fell out and I ended up in the ER for seven hours, just unattended. Like no one came, like, I was like, Hey, can you give me some type of like, I don't know, something knocked me out. Like I am in pain, right? I'm at like a nine at this point. They're like, no, no, you can't because you got to go to radiology. And I'm thinking in my head, like, 
So you're telling me radiology can't let me be, can't let me be great. Like I, I don't understand. So I finally spoke to like the attending doctor. He was like, you know, I can bring you Tylenol. And I'm thinking in my head, like, what is Tylenol going to do? But I was like, okay, you know, I'm by myself during COVID and I have no one else to advocate for me. So I have to play this right. Right. Cause even if I called somebody on the phone, which my phone wasn't working because of we're in the, the ER, whatever. So I was like, I have nobody to talk on my behalf. So let me play this right. So I wait and they come in, they take the tape off that I have, take the tube to my stomach, rip it off and just let the tube hang out. So it was just kind of like, okay, you know what, you know what I mean? So what's next? So Eventually, uh, I got the tube fixed. It was a thing. But even though I know some people that hear this story, they're like, Michaela, it wasn't racism. It even, okay, we'll play that card, right? We'll play the devil's advocate. But if anything, it was doctors and their physicians and nurses having their own biases and not really checking that, that put me in danger of who knows what. And so that story always like stays in my head because I'm like, wow, okay, you know? And I remember when that happened to you, I was just like, astonished that they would do that. And, and yes, I know that doctors and nurses were overworked, especially the beginning of a pandemic. We are not discounting that, but I think if you're non-disabled and you don't have a chronic illness, you don't understand how difficult advocating for yourself in that situation can be. And you're right, everyone has implicit bias. So everyone has these implicit biases that, you know, the doctor might look at you and think, well, she'll be okay. I'm sure she's not in that much pain. I remember I was going to occupational therapy for an injury I had, and the therapist was a white woman. And she asked me what my pain level was that day. And I told her either an eight or a nine. Now, the chronic illness pain scale is way different than the average person's pain scale because my baseline is a five and the average person is like a zero or a one. So just to give you some perspective, and I told her that my pain was like an eight or a nine that day. And she goes, no, I don't think so. I'm like, okay. And then I told her my I think I said my fibromyalgia was really bothering me that day. And she proceeded to press her fingertips into my skin to the point of leaving marks. And then her comment was, oh, you really are flaring today. So... So let me get this straight. She had to, and I think that's what bothers me. That's what truly bothers me is to them until they can physically see how we feel internally or like how we feel, that's when they can start to believe us versus just like hands down. This is what I believe. Can I tell you a quick story actually? Okay. So recently I was on Instagram, just scroll, right? And I saw somebody that I follow had said something about 
I guess just it was like a routine that they were doing something. I don't know, some kind of procedure or something. But they were talking about the pain medication that they were giving because they had a prior, like they had, you know, a list of their illnesses, one of which was causing them more trouble than usual. They told their doctor, their doctor gave them like multiple, multiple things. Right. And I said to my friend, I was like, mind you, my friend is white. And I was like, am I tripping or, or is this? is this weird? She was like, no, Michaela, like you're completely valid in your, your feelings. Because when I go to the doctor, when you and I go, they, they don't believe that we are truly in pain until that it's evident to them. It's like, cause then if I cry, I'm being overdramatic. But then if I yell and get heated, then I'm an angry black woman. So it's like, where do I sit to where you believe me? Because if I come in and I say I'm at a seven, I'm already irritated. But I can't give you that because you do not know how to take it as a medical professional because your ego is too big. So it's like, what what are we supposed to do in those situations, you know? And that's the narrative that bothers me is the angry black woman. Obviously, that's not my experience. I get the angry disabled woman. So I'm being irrational or I'm like, why am I raising my voice? Why am I upset? And it's like, there's a reason why I'm upset. And yeah, they have to see that we are in pain for them to believe us. And I'm struggling and I still struggle with trying to understand why. Well, I know why, but we are talking about it's medical racism, but is so deeply ingrained in society. I've told you this story before. I am Middle Eastern. I had a rheumatologist who was Middle Eastern as well. He was from a country that is or was at odds with my place of birth. And when he found out where I was born, he looked at me and he laughed and said, oh, ha ha, I should not like you. What? Yes. Yes. A uh, how professional. Yes. Yes. He said, I should not like you simply because where he is from, the country he's from, is not on the best terms with my place of birth. Now, some may argue that that is not medical racism. I would beg to differ on that point. Mm -hmm. I agree. So what we're talking about misconceptions about like, about illnesses, what are some misconceptions that you've come up against about chronic illness and more specifically, your chronic illness. I think here recently, honestly, for me has been people and their, I think, um, their stereotypes of what disability looks like. They don't understand how that affects people, especially me, for instance. I have an invisible disability, right? You ain't just going, like, it's going, there's ways to this, right? Like, for instance, my accessibility need may be I cannot have a washer and dryer that's those two on top of each other because my shoulders cannot do that, right? So to me, that's something that is accessible. But to somebody just off the street who saw me, they're like, yo, like, what are you, you know what I'm saying? So I think that's the biggest issue for me is people's like misconceptions about what disability is, right? And so 
with that, it's hard to, to like, I guess, express to other people what ableism is and like what that looks like day to day for me personally, because people don't get it. Right. It's just even in the medical world, like I have doctors and physicians who are like, okay, so otherwise though, you're healthy. And I'm like, clearly not. If I'm sitting in front of you with this issue happening, clearly I'm not. And so it's frustrating because people do not understand that disability is a spectrum. It's going to look different for every human being experiencing it. And I also think people have this idea that that can never be them. It's like, oh, it's just, uh, you know, like the other kind of other us at some point. And it's just, they, they just don't have any critical thinking skills about it. And it truly bothers me. And I'm just, I'm just over it at this point, especially like now though, being, 25 like I used to be super like cautious about using my disabled parking pass and now I'm like I wish somebody would say something I'm ready to fight like especially given how this panoramic has played out so I'm like I'm ready come on come at me you know where's Karen you know but that's just me <laughs> and that is wild on you you know I I have this I think misconception also because I have cerebral palsy, which is a disability I've had since birth. And I'm in a wheelchair. I'm very visibly disabled. But in my doctor's mind, I can't have a chronic illness and have a physical disability. In my own social media also, people will comment and be like, well, you don't understand. And my but I do because I'm chronically ill. So I'm that part of my identity is getting away constantly. And it's like, I feel, and this is my personal opinion, my life experience, I feel more disabled by my chronic illness the past three to four years than I ever did with my cerebral palsy. Again, that's just my personal experience. Other people may experience something different, but that's me. And and that's kind of interesting to even hear you say that. Because again, I think people have this stereotype in their head of like, this is what affects marriage the most, right? They see you in a wheelchair, they're like, ah, got it. Versus physicians actually listening to like, hey, my fiber was like really tripping today. Don't push, you know what I'm saying? Like things like that. And even for me, like I'm going through this issue now of having healthcare providers who like follow up with you, like, okay, we're going to do all of these things, but you're well enough to be okay. But it's like, I don't think you understand how, like, I, I, I can't function in this level of pain. Like, this is not, this ain't normal. I don't want to do this. Right. And so it kind of just gets lost in translation. And then people don't listen to you if they don't, if you don't look the part or if you don't act the part, they can't put two and two together. But I just wish ableism wasn't running so rampant within healthcare because maybe that would, even with nurses, like sometimes nurses have said things to me and I'm like, whoa, 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 you know, pumpkin breaks. Like, why? <laughs> why are you talking to me like this? You know what I mean? And the thing that annoys me is we say lack of adequate care. We deserve better than just adequate care. And when we talk about original adequate care, I want more than just adequate care. And I was pushed off by my physician assistant to another PA because they were too busy to see me. And I had a lot of work done. Mind you, again, both of are white. 
I have a lot of work done. And it's in my chart that I have rheumatology issues that I'm calling for you. It's in my chart. And the last PA I saw looked at my lab work and said, do you have some rheumatology issues? <laughs> no. <laughs> and at those moments, I'm like, how do I not be sarcastic with you? How do, how do I not get irritated with you? Because especially like when you're coming into an appointment and you already have in your mind what's going to be talked about, what you need addressed and how you want it addressed. And then they say stuff like that. So do you, did you read the chart before I walked in? Did you have a chance to look at it before I walked in the door? Because I've been waiting here for an hour and 30 minutes. So you had your time. I'm just saying. But yeah, that, <laughs> that's so annoying. Oh, I look at him and I said, yeah, I have lupus. And he just goes, oh, and he nods his head. I'm like, well, I'm thinking, I'm so glad I can help you diagnose me. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say it, but, you know, I was thinking. And then they referred me back to a rheumatologist, which was an hour and a half away that didn't do anything for me. And I got a letter from the rheumatologist's office. It was a letter for a new patient. I'm like, I'm not a new patient. I have been there like three or four times before. And I've had this experience as well of like, you get referred out to another doctor that's not helpful has terrible bedside manner, like just all in all, and doesn't understand any of your conditions. So it's like, why are we talking to each other? This honestly could have been a Zoom call. And if that, it shouldn't have been this long. You know, like I always have those thoughts, but I've even had to tell a couple of my doctors that I actually like, I'm like, listen, please don't refer me to them. They're terrible. They're not good. Like they don't understand me. I don't know what you were thinking. I'm sorry, because it's not only a waste of their time, it's a waste of our time and mental energy. And with that, we have this much, like y'all can't see me, but it's a very small amount that we have energy to give to these types of things because medical appointments are exhausting. So it's like, why are you going to continue to not only have somebody gaslight me, but then I have to sit there and look at them and still listen to them? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. And we're expected to be respectful to them, but yet we don't get the same respect in return. And that first, I know that frustrates you as well. We're all out of time for today. Be sure to tune in for part two when Michael and I talk about intersectionality, COVID, and find out what her message to the non-disabled community is. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Politics of Disability podcast. I can never get remember, disability is political, disability is messy, disability is not powerful, nor does it have to be.